On The Regenerative Journey, our goal is to nurture and facilitate the lives and journeys of all our followers, which is why we've teamed up with resource consulting service, RCS, Australia's leading provider of education and advisory services in regenerative agriculture. RCS trains and consults across the ag sector, from individuals and families, through to corporates and even government, empowering people to grow productive and profitable businesses in diverse and, importantly, healthy landscapes. They understand that the future of healthy families, resilient communities and regenerative farming lies in holistic education. Over the last 15 years, I've played an integral role in my own regenerative journey. And I have a lot to thank RCS for, and I'm one of 7,500 others who have attended their farming and grazing for profit course. I don't know where I'd actually be, uh, and I certainly wouldn't be this far down my own regenerative journey if I hadn't completed a significant amount of training with the RCS team. I can't recommend more highly uh, RCS to anyone looking to start their regenerative journey in a supportive and proven environment. Terry, Makoska and your team, you absolutely rock. And we're also absolutely stoked to be collaborating with them now. For my listeners only, we're offering a 10% discount on all farming and grazing for profit schools and grazing clinics in Australia this year. If you add this to the early bird rate of a seven-day school, you could get a whopping $1,000 off the standard price. Simply add the code CHARLIERCS, that's CHARLIERCS, that's one word, at the checkout to get your concession. How awesome is that? Now head to the show notes to find out more. I don't believe it's something that should be exchanged for money. It's as, as important or it's as much a human right as, um, as healthcare. I don't see why an emergency room is free, but eating healthy food isn't. And that might be controversial to some, but to me, it's quite obvious. That was Jay Marinus, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer and in this podcast series I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host Charlie Arnott. G'day and welcome back to The Regenerative Journey. Um, again, before I launch into the guest for this month's, um, this month, <laughs> I'd be a bit sad if I did every month, this week's episode, a um, couple of things I'm just going to touch on. One thing that I think is particular interest at the moment is politics, the, the world of politics. I don't often uh, launch into that at all. It's not generally my my bag, I think, just as a bit of a cave, not a caveat, but certainly an over, overriding principle of my views on politics is that an experience has shown that uh, you're more likely to get stuff done by just getting on and doing it. I'm talking about being individually and as a community. Um, if my view is if we wait for government to kind of create initiatives and implement things, um, we're not going to be progressing, not not in the world and not a type of world that I think is appropriate or necessary at this point in time. 
So I generally um, don't involve myself in politics too much. I did in some ways back in the day when I was um, – uh, I w- had a big issue with wind farms, which I've been I've banged on about before. I don't need to go into the detail now. So I was um, lobbying, if that's the right word, rallying, literally, um, and visiting politicians non-stop for two years. So I've had my dose of kind of what happens in the halls of so-called power in Canberra and New South Wales. Um, just not a big fan of being involved myself. Uh, so, yeah, again, I think the, the, the best way to get anything done is just get on and do it. Obviously there's rules and regulations and legal legal considerations um, and whether you overstep those boundaries is <laughs> entirely up to you. Uh, however, um, there is a lot to be said for creating the path to the future, creating the impulse to just get on and get things done. Um, and that's pretty much any sort of facet of life, I think, um, you know, the, again, my view, my experience has been politicians and, and, and the world of politics. Uh, it's all about it's all about um, the squeaky wheel who has the loudest voice, which is fine. But it's also about you know what's in it for them, what's the best outcome for them. Uh, if it looks good and it um, you know there's enough people on board with a particular initiative or a movement then they might go that way because it's all about numbers. Um, and so at this point in time, on a number of different levels, you know, politicians aren't inter- interested in a lot of things that, you know, sort of various facets of agriculture, um, you know, working close with nature, you know, they're sort of getting whiffs of it and they kind of think that might be all right, I think, generally, but they're not embracing it wholly and solely. And that's fine because there's a whole lot of people who aren't politicians and aren't in politics who aren't caught up in red tape and bureaucracy that are just getting on and doing some amazing stuff and relatively un, or, you know, in unorganised or um, uh, uh, unorchestrated way. You, know, you don't need an organisation to oversee everything that goes on in a particular movement or whatever. I think the guerrilla tactics and the way that people just get on and do it is fantastic. Now, to the more the, sort of the more immediate political stuff that's going on, there's an election coming up, which is interesting. I've driven... We are doing a lot of driving lately and the placards, the billboards, the core flute posters everywhere. I hope those guys are going to come and take them down because that's a whole lot of plastic sitting up in trees and up on posts that probably should be disposed of somehow. Uh, we don't be looking at all those mugs all year round. Uh, it's incredible how there's so many. I mean, the thing that struck me is the number of independents that are the running, which I think is a really good thing. You know, the majors, if you can call them that, traditionally the majors... Um, I think, need to be worried. Uh, I think there's much more going on behind closed doors than we're aware of. Um, Deals, preferences, uh, that sort of thing. But nonetheless, I think the fact that there's a lot of people who are going, this is not right, we're not happy with the the political direction of the the politics in Australia and the outcomes, Uh, I think a lot of that's been um, like no other time before because it's been a pretty unique couple of years. Um, the whole COVID spicy flu thing, the way that was handled, I think people are just sick of that. Um, on many levels, the health levels, on the sort of the impact on businesses level, the, you know, the economics of it um, and the mishandling, I think, of the whole thing. So what is good is that, uh, yeah, people have, you know, individuals and, and part, other political parties have come up. Now, whether you like them or not and you want to pull them apart and say, oh, they've got this agenda and that agenda, 
that's for others to debate. I'm just pleased that there seems to be enough motivation, impetus for people to go, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and have a, have a crack. Um, as far as how I vote, um, I'm not telling anyone, but it certainly won't be in, in the way I might have traditionally. Um, because I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure who... I haven't been following, to, to tell you the truth, many of the candidates. Uh, again, uh, I just know that there's a lot more choice, it seems, this year. Or, or, or at least... Um, relevant and kind of um, positive choice. There's always been a lot of, I guess, a fair bit of choice, but in terms of the the relevance to now and um, potential impact on politics in Australia, these in, these independents and these different political parties that have sprung up, I just think it's quite exciting as to what might happen there. And again, I think the majors probably probably should be, you know. Concerned. If they're not concerned, then that is interesting in itself. That you know, with, with if they're not concerned, then um, that says to me something else is going on. If they're just going, oh no, you know, they know the result, or they'll be fine, or they're all kind of having chats behind closed doors. Who knows? I'm not suspecting. I'm not suggesting foul play or anything. I'm just putting out there. Anyway, that's my that's my little bang on about. Um, politics, because that's about as far as I want to go into that. It's just not a game I want to play at all. Uh, but I do want to play the game of workshops in Queensland that we're doing uh, on the 20th and 21st of um, June up at Claremont with um, uh, Shantae up there, and we're going to be at Bill of Wheel a couple of days later in on the uh, with Cherie there, 25th and 26th of uh, of June in the same month, just the weekend after. So that's on a Saturday, Sunday. And then we're down at the sunny Sunshine Coast uh, on the 29th and 30th of June as well. I have an itchy nose. I don't know what's going on there. Um, that's on the Sunshine Coast with Mitch and Nina Bray, who have been hosting us for a number of times now, and it's a fantastic spot to be down there. Um, beautiful farm and a beautiful part of the world. And then we'll be in the Scenic Rim on the 14th and 15th of July. So a couple of days later at K. Tomerop's Dairy there um, at Kerry in Queensland. And it is, I've been there last year and it's fantastic. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, what else? I know we'll be back in Burrawa down there in spring. We haven't set a date. Oh, yes, we have. 5th and 6th of September. There you go. So book your tickets there. And we'll be in WA in, uh, in November, we reckon. Oh, no, early October, it says here. Okay. Well, anyway, we'll be certainly in WA in spring. So book them, book your tickets. Um, get on now. Plenty of early bird specials to be grabbing. Uh, and what else? RCS Convergence, of course, 15th and 16th of July in Bris Vegas. Get your tickets at crsc2022.com.au. Um, I get them soon because they are running out and it's – I just keep hearing it and it's popping up everywhere. So um, get on board for that um, wonderful conference. Now to our guest, Jay Marinas, who I met through oh, virtually, um, electronically, through Dan Coward there at our Kina Wine Estate. Thank you, Dan, uh, who told me all about Jay's wonderful um, initiatives and projects he's, he's doing in Adelaide Hills. Uh, the Scenic Hotel in Norton Summit we, we are, was, the, was the site for the for the, our chat uh, you'll just have to listen to next week's episode to find out more. Um, 
No, hang on. No, this is the episode. I'm going mad. All this recording I'm doing, I'm going nuts. This is the episode. So I better tell you about him just very quickly. Lovely bloke. He is doing amazing things there, um, creating a community garden, which it's all about a public house. I just love the word public house. I always have. We always shorten it to pub, of course. Um, but public house, it really is about a house for the public to, to convene and converge and to create community. And that's what he wants to to reinstate in that part of the world and create a wonderful model for um, for for community, basically, and in integrating you know food and the garden over the road and mental health sort of therapy through the gardening and, and other other modalities. It's just wonderful. So have a have a lovely listen to to Jay. Uh, really enjoyed meeting him for the first time and uh, and recording his regenerative journey. Um, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. When I spoke with Jay Marinas uh, for the regenerative journey, lovely artwork put together by David Button. Behind us, yeah, it's awesome. By a name man, uh, a Japanese man, um, Rente of the surname Rente. Right, he died about fifty years ago or something. But he's a collector of this particular art. It's a Japanese forest scene. I love. I actually quite like Japanese art. My Rente. grandparents had a fair bit of it, and I love the fact that that wall over there is. I guess as as was. Yeah, so we pulled up three layers of wallpaper and we found original data line with this beautiful teal and that informed how we design the rest of the room. Awesome. Jay, we're on. We're recording. We've had 36 seconds of banter, <laughs> which is awesome. I actually, half my um, interviews actually <laughs> start that way. <laughs> my, guests, my guests just start talking. I go, well, hang on, we're on. <laughs> Jay <laughs> Marinas. <laughs> Have I said it properly? Yeah, you did. Because we, we, I had to check because someone recently didn't say it properly, no. did they? Yeah, no. They should r- remain un- unnamed. <laughs> we have, I have the pleasure of speaking, of meeting with, with, with Jay for the first time and I have to thank um, Dan Coward of Alkina Wine Estate for um, lining us up um, this interview and we are at um, Norton Summit. Mm-hmm. Scenic Hotel. Scenic Hotel in in Morton, Norton, I've done it again, Norton Summit in the Adelaide Hills. Yes. And I was just saying to Jay, if we hadn't done this interview and I hadn't had Dan tell me and I wouldn't have met um, uh, Sophie from the uh, Gardening Australia just down the road and I wouldn't have probably ever been here before. So Mm. it's wonderful. The sun is just shining. We were inside because the wind was a bit... Mm windy out there mm-hmm. wind tends to be windy and we thought this is a better spot jay we are sitting in the scenic hotel um in norton summit and what does it mean to you to be sitting here in such an historic mm. hotel and <clears throat> reflecting on how you've got here which we're going to we're going to unpack in a minute but what does it mean to sit here and kind of um, not sitting next to me, and but just being here and kind of running the show here and being in such a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, it's well, it's um, you know ten years worth of thinking and uh, even longer of dreaming to get here. Mm. Um, and it's not just me. There's a whole group of people that um, are responsible for operating this beautiful place, namely Alistair Wells and Enoch Yates, my two main business partners. Um, and then, you know, countless other people um, involved in, in getting us where we are today. Um, and, yeah, it, for me, it, it's both daunting and also incredibly exciting, given the fact that we are moving into our second stage of this project. 
um, and, and venturing into a place which is fairly unknown. Um, there's not many other examples that we can find to inform our design and, um, you know, th these are always scary things, venturing into the unknown, but also the most um, worthwhile as well. <clears throat> and what is it, without going into all the detail, because again we'll unpack that, what is it, what is it the culmination of? You know, you've got to this yeah. point. It's what what what's what's led you to this point without telling me all the story because mm -hmm. we're going to go sort of backwards in a minute. Yeah, so we are running a, a pub, a public house, in the truest sense of the word, and and our next stages are a therapeutic horticulture garden um, operated through obviously an organic biodynamic lens, and and then the third aspect is an allied health practice. Um, and those three form the basis of what I'm calling a community integration hub, um, the hotel being arguably the most important part of that, and that's why we started with this place um, and then are now venturing out into our second parts. We're, we're about a year and a half in now, and so we're on track, surprisingly, with our projections of where we were going. Um, but, yeah, hotel, garden, allied health being the three core components Let's go back in time, Jay, to when you were a little Jay. Mm. Um, where were you being a little Jay? And what, what were you? What were you doing? What was the sort of what? What context? What? What geographically? Where were you? Mm. So I grew up here in Adelaide, um, in the northern suburbs, which is, you know, some would refer to as the uh, the the wrong end of town or the <laughs> other side of the track. I'm not. I'm not familiar <laughs> with Adelaide. Yeah, I know it's not Adelaide and Glenelg. Okay, so Glenelg is west. West. We're near the beach. Oh, and yeah. We are east here in the Adelaide Hills. And east and west are very much the places um, in which <laughs> culture and affluence and, um, you know, maybe a little bit more um, uh, length, and, length and breadth, so to speak, in the community. Whereas north and south have um, been, you know, for the longest period, been known as a little bit more of the uh, growth and development areas. And so, yeah, I grew up in, uh, in, the, in the north part of South Australia, in Adelaide. Um, and, yeah, we grew up really simply, um, me and one other sister. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do at Ur all. Urban, urban kind of a... Yeah. Yeah, urban, suburban situation. Very much yep. suburban life yeah. and going to, you know, schools are, are mark, demarcated on a one to seven level, seven being, like, incredibly low SES and that schools I went to were level seven um and so my community was very broad and very diverse and i'm very thankful for that um and that's really informed the person that i you know the core foundation of who i am and if you're going to talk about value set um i think i would probably say diversity is a key one um because you know the only way that we grow and learn is from each other and we're all as individual as our thumbprints and without um, that level of diversity we have a really shallow and sad Existence, and and that's what I'm. That's definitely informed the outlook, which now takes me to where we are today. And what what cultures were there? Um, uh, what 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 what? Where are you from? What what's your your kind of heritage? Uh, my dad is a Macedonian, so North Macedonian, um, Eastern European. So um, not to be mistaken with the Greek part of Macedonia for all those playing at home. Uh, you very much offend people, not me, because I think it's all the bloody same, you know. But um, people that are diehards will say, oh, no, that's the Islamic part of uh, 
of Macedonia. It's a very different culture. And I agree, it is. Very different language and set of values as well. And then my mother's Italian. So um, every day I wake up, I hate myself a little bit more. <laughs> is that, uh, that's in your genes, is it? Yeah, but interestingly, um, the part of Italy where my mum is from is Molfetta in the southern part of Puglia. It's the, one of the only places you can catch a ferry to Macedonia. So mum and dad weren't far from each other, but... Um, they met in Australia. Puglia. <clears throat> My family and I were in Italy for a couple of months, a couple of years ago. And we, we stayed in Puglia and it was beautiful. Quite mm. like it felt um, – have you been over there? Have you yeah, 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 yeah. It felt – I can't remember. There's a, the, the, the town with the Bari? Pottery. Oh. It's a lot of pottery. It's famous for its well. pottery. And it was – we sort of um, didn't seem all that far from the, the water on the, on the shoe, mm. on, the, on the hill, mm-hmm. the western part of the hill. And then we went. Then we went further east, back to mm. the um, the other bit. Just terrible names. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's a lovely fascinating place. part of the world. Very much so. <laughs> Excuse me. Italy. And I'm I married an Italian, half oh, Italian. So I kind of get that. Half your luck. Yeah. Oh no, totally. Like just there's so much, so much um, wonderful that stuff that I've learned about in terms of fa- family values mm. and just connection and just family mm. kind of you know keeping it together. Um, yeah, so what happened then? So finished school? Yeah, very much finished school. I then went on to um, finish a, a degree in classical history, um, which at that point in time I thought, what am I doing with this? I'm not going to be a librarian. Very strange choice. Um, and I was... Why, why, why classical, of all the things? Well, um, in all honesty, my classical history teacher in year 11, Mr Poravecchio, if you're listening, um, he pretty much rescued me from school. I was really having a tough time. Like, I think I was... I have to have some level of intelligence to... Oh, shit. What's happened there? Sorry. That's all right. off. What happened there? Sorry. Oh, this is my video, <laughs> which has... Oh, damn it. I took a video off there this morning. That often tells me it's running out of memory, but... Bloody thing. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, so Mr... Yeah, Mr... Poravecchio, yeah, he informed... Um, Definitely how I saw myself. I was struggling in high school and he rescued me and, and helped me with um, the medium of tragedy. Tragedy was the thing that saved me, I think. Um, so if we're talking about um, classical history, we're talking about the period called antiquity, which is um, you know, 500 BCE before Common Era um, and you know, two or 300 years pre and post that. Um, you know, tragedians such as Sophocles and uh, Euripides, two of my favourites. And, yeah, I was like, well, that made sense to me. I got really good marks in it. I might as well just go do it at, at, at uni. And then I did because I was a little bit lost at that point. And I finished it. And, um, uh, yeah, I sort of got to the end of it and scratching my head as to what I was going to do next. And Before we leave that yeah. one, sorry. Please. Did, did you learn about the Stoics and the Stoic Very version? much so, yeah. Yeah, right, yep. cool. Because that's, that's, that seems to be... I mean, I don't know if it's probably always been in... <clears throat> it's certainly been on much more on my radar in the last few years, and it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? Mm, Love yeah, yeah. Kind of, uh, I think there's, of some, life. there's some harsh and unrealistic aspects of Stoicism which I don't necessarily agree with, but I think it um, is a rather interesting philosophy for sure. Mm. Sorry, so, yeah, so you got to through that. Yeah, and um, while I was finishing that, I was doing some electives in psychology and um, said, well, maybe this is something I'd be interested in. Um, and so called the union and said, can I complete a double degree instead um, of giving me this one thing? Like, yeah, yeah, no worries, dude, another three years. And I was like, oh, cool. So I'll, I'll do that. And so I did. 
Um, and then I graduated with a double degree in, in psychology. And, and But similarly, got to the end of that, I was like, oh, I can't actually do anything with this. I have to go on and keep going. So I, I finished the, the fourth year and then did two more years after that of practice. So I'm coming to the end of that now and uh, will be a registered psychologist um, at the end of October. Um, and and also completing a um, also a PhD candidate as we speak. So in doing, philosophy, no, in psychology. Sorry, in in psychology. Yeah, 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 yeah. In psychology. Yeah, yeah, so fantastic. Another four years on top of that, which is the next sort of little mission. Okay, so we'll just we, we, what when we get to the end of this interview, we're going to give you a bit of a review on how realistic that is, given the <laughs> other stuff you're going to tell me about. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like um, breaking off more than I can chew, um, but they're all things that I really love. So. Uh, and I'm never tired of doing them. Um, so what, what then? What was the next kind of chapter? Mm, so as I'm f- sort of finishing these last two years of practice before I can be fully registered, uh, I started to form the idea which I had been sitting on for a while, which was this um, community integration hub, uh, bringing together, definitely bringing together all of the things I've just talked about. Um, I did, a, I did one year of, well, I was supposed to do a year, I didn't do the whole thing, uh, of exchange in Germany um, in 2011, I'm going to say, and that was like during the heat of the Syrian war. And that very much informed my perspective on community and how it should look. Um, the people in Berlin were very much rallying around the people in Syri- that were you know, refugees from Syria there. Um, we were protesting every day. We were... Um, you know, eating in these pay-what-you-can-style dining rooms. Um, we were meeting families which had, you know, p- members which are disabled, which were queer, which had so much different diversity, and everyone there just knew how to hold them. And then I was sort of being reflective of Australia and realising that there, I couldn't name a single place like that. Other than, you know, if we're going back to primary school, those homes that I went to the Aboriginal family that I experienced so closely and you know lots of Vietnamese families I, I, I hold close even to today and that's the level of care and diversity that I sort of experienced but in our general you know South Australian life I couldn't see those same examples so that really lit a bit of a fire underneath me to say all right I've got this classical histories thing that's going to inform the way I think and the cyclical nature of life and now I understand human behaviour and I can apply that in a practical way. How do I bring this all together? And, you know, I was doing some shifts in hospitality, you know, did that on the side for another 10 years or so in between all that. And I was like, well, hospitality is the linchpin which drives it all together. This is the place that um, we were sp- we are supposed to meet and exchange. Uh, and yet I don't see that in our current world. I, I see a commodified and really sad depiction of what was the most important thing to everyday life. Well, I guess it's a great point, you know, that I guess the, the public house, as you as you said it before, which is absolutely right, you know, we call it a pub, but we forget mm. kind of what its original kind yes. of purpose was. Um, I think, I mean, there's clearly, there's still a lot of pubs around, of course, and there's mm. places that identify as going for a drink and a yarn, mm. but yeah. I guess generally there's not, there's not, and there's entertainment and there's mm. hospitality and so on, but in terms of a bigger picture intention for that house of the public or for the public it's um uh that just doesn't exist so I'm, I'm, i totally agree with you thank you for pointing that out because it's kind of 
it can be such a wonderful, uh, no doubt what you're creating here, a wonderful hub and a centre for, for friendship and relationship mm. and, and community. So tell me more. Yeah, so I guess like I shouldn't get too ahead of myself. We are, you know, only in that first stage and all of the things that will, you know, eventually come out in this podcast and me sort of lamenting over, um, we are still doing. So, I, you know, I don't want to be hubristic um, or uh, unfair um, and, and, you know, preface this with saying we're still learning, we're still trying. These are just some... Um, some basic tenets which we believe in, which we're moving towards, and um, anyone that's not doing this shouldn't feel as though that they need to chastise themselves, you know. Um, and so, yeah, we're moving to a place which honours, I guess, the, the ideal of hospitality from a classical history perspective. Um, you know, I said this recently, and um, I forgot that I knew it, uh, but it makes so much sense, really. So... Um, Zeus, everyone knows Zeus in the Pantheon of Gods. He was entrusted with two roles, uh, the God of Gods, so made sure that everyone was in check, and the God of Hospitality. So to the Greek culture, ancient Greek culture, hospitality was obviously the most important thing to everyday life. Um, it, it's called xenia, the idea of um, being, protect, being the protector of a stranger uh, is generally the, the concept. And welcoming someone into your home and this is our home in every sense of the word and um, providing them everything and asking for very little in return and um, that being the way in which people learn and understand from one another without this we are siloed creatures and that's not how humans can exist and so we're trying to return to this model and obviously there's some realities in place um, we, we exist within a neoliberalist capitalist world uh, and things need to be Commodified in order to pay the bills, but they don't necessarily need to be in the way that we're doing it, and that's sort of the point of difference, the counterpoint that I'm talking about. I think we can create latent funding within a hospitality model which allows for um, truly regenerative hospitality services rather than just regenerative food on a plate because I think that's a low bar to set. Um, and so I guess that's a, a really important thing to mention here that Obviously, this podcast is about regenerative farming, something we very much believe in uh, and we are hoping to practice in our own farm here. But um, I think that's not far enough. Humans are a part of the biome. And if um, you know only people that have an exorbitant amount of money can afford to dine in these places, then we're missing whole, whole segments of the community. And that means that we're sick um, as much as the earth is currently sick. So... Um, you know, biodynamics, as, you know, I'm not an expert, um, but my understanding is that it's the promotion of healthy biospheres and the creation of um, diverse biospheres. And so, you know, we're so hell-bent on that being our farm life, um, but we're forgetting that humans are a huge part of that. We're not divorced from nature, we are nature. And so in these eating places, which I believe are the linchpins of our society, how can whole droves of, whole segments of community be excluded from healthy, healthy eating habits? Um, it makes no sense to me. And I think it's de definitely a segment of this, this world that we're missing quite a lot. So how does one <clears throat> include um, those, and, you know, I'd suggest that a lot of, you know, I guess the, in most, in a lot of cases, the ones who 
um, don't have access, mm. whether it's because they don't know or they don't can't afford it. I mean, they're they're more likely they're really the ones that need it the most, don't they? 100%. Because they they probably haven't had it like as you know someone's um, economic sort of situation demographic increases. Um, they probably have opportunity to access better food, and mm. so they kind of have a dare I say a higher plane of nutrition mm. generally. But how do you get those ones that probably haven't possibly haven't had a good feed in their life? Yep. Yeah, how do we get them? That's exactly what we're trying to tackle. Things. And one one aspect I think it's multifaceted. And you know, if we were going to explore the whole thing, we'd need the whole afternoon. But we'll try our best. All right, Charlie. <laughs> we'll try our best. This is an exercise in. Summarisation. Yes. Uh, I'm getting my <laughs> elevator pitch down better every day. Um, uh, yeah, have you got one? Not really, no. <laughs> uh, I'm, okay, I'm it can be an escalator pitch. Yeah, like yeah, it yeah. can be a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah, we'll give it a go. So <laughs> it doesn't have to be too to, succinct. To address your first part, I think that, yes, people um, of low socioeconomic background that are marginalised, they need this service more than anyone. They need healthy um, nutrient-rich food uh, and I could cite a million different articles as to the importance of psychological benefit um, to which healthy, nutritious food results in. Our stomach is very much our second brain, if not our first um, and I won't be the first person, I'm sure to say that on this podcast um, and you know, if I'm going to put my psychologist hat on um, if, you, if you drew circles around the, the parts of South Australia which were most affected by mental ill health, it would be those that also have uh, very low socioeconomic status. And, and we know for a fact that those people are not eating healthily um, because they just can't afford it. Uh, and that's where the McDonald's pop up and that's where the, all these different things. So, you know, there's lots of factors, food being one of them. Um, but I think if we can start to reshape what hospitality venues look like and how to access them, we can mobilize huge amounts of people to gain access to organic or biodynamic food and also provide community integration in what is essentially the psychology office of the everyday person i think you know you sit at the bar and or you talk you know you sit at a table and a waiter comes to you and they ask you how your day went that might seem um mundane to some but to to me it's it's an exercise in table psychology it's how do you possibly change that person's day, week or month in the exercise of eating and drinking. And um, I think that everyone should have access to these places regardless of how fancy they are. And you know, my argument is the, 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 the healthier the restaurant generally, the more expensive it is. You, know, you can't really afford to dine in half of these places, let alone, well, I can't, let alone some of these other people. So we do that by um, leveraging... What are, what's called latent funding, so funding that isn't necessarily directly observable um, through you know what is traditional hospitality funds. So food and drink being the, the main two, and if people don't sh- come in the door, um, you're stuffed that week. So uh, hospitality is a really interesting one for that. There's nothing else you can draw upon, um, and arguably a commodity which should never have been commodified, in my my opinion. And I can go into that for about a million years. Food. Uh, food, yeah, food, and, and, yeah, food. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's. I don't believe it's something that should be exchanged for money. It's as as important, or it's as much a human right as um, as healthcare. I don't see why an emergency room is free, but eating healthy food isn't. And that might be controversial to some, but to me, it's quite obvious. Uh, and someone else called it idealistic the other day um, on a on a 
on a radio station I won't name. And um, I, I, I single, go on. I single, it was the no. I single handedly in one sentence summarized why it's not, and then do it. Do it now. Oh no, there's no point. Uh, no, no, no. You, you, do you want to like? You, what was your re- what was your, your yeah? So he that? said that this idea was idealistic, and I said, well, if wanting and requiring people from every diverse background to access healthy and sustainable food and mental health sources is idealistic. I'm not entirely sure that I want to be around for that version of reality. And in actual fact, because of all of the structure that we're proposing, it's actually quite pragmatic to Mm. offer this to everyone and not idealistic. So as as you say, I think I'd agree that... It can't. The food can't have a value as in a commercial dollar value placed on it, if it is to be accessed by everyone whose 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 place in life is measured by how much money mm. they've got. So because mm. that because they just simply won't be able to afford to do mm. it. So is it about the vo- volume, but good quality volume, so quality and quantity of food, <clears throat> which which makes it at the end of the day, someone's got to grow it. So mm. does that make it? cheaper not less value um is that how those who probably really need it can then access it is mm. it is it more to do with it? is there some trade involved as in it's not it's not a dollar mm-hmm. for food trade it's kind of a some other kind of way of, of doing it yeah so or is it really just like we've got it on you come and eat it so i guess the in the short term um we we help people um See, and this is why I don't want it to come off as charity. It's very much mm. not a charity. The idea is exchange, and I feel like people um, that are marginalised, that have disabilities, that are from diff- different backgrounds, have as much to give as anyone else. And if you're sitting next to someone like that, which I saw in Berlin, you are gaining just as much from anyone else. So that's where I definitely don't want it to come off as like, oh, we're helping these people. I think that it's very much about helping the whole society. Um, and, and in the first instance, I'll try not to get off track, sorry. No, 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 we're all about going off track. <laughs> in the first instance, it's about pay what you can style dining. So Lentil is Anything did this really well in Victoria, if you're aware. Unfortunately, they recently closed, but they, you know, were the stalwarts of this um, thinking for the better part of 15 years. Do they, they shut because why? COVID apparently. Because a, a large majority of their workforce were international people. Um, yeah, but yeah. we're, we're not doing the same the same model it's not based on that it's that was very much just food and and drink for whatever you can pay to, it to be that's one aspect of what i'm proposing um so in the short term accessing pay what you can style dining at the scenic hotel and that is uh, very much leveraged on the fact that we we've built a community here of people that are very generous and i would like to think that those people would come back on those evenings and pay more than what they think that it's worth in order to supplement those those dining experiences and also gain a huge experience from being next to all these different diverse people um and and that's how we do it in the very short term and it's not that's not longitudinal thinking that's um how do we solve a problem right now and start to live by this value set that we're we're sort of rolling out for ourselves down the track and and very much now what's happening um we're moving into stage two uh, it's called the topsoil garden project uh and that's happening just across the road we'll go for a walk later yeah. um and that, just a shout out to lily yeah lily stevens what an amazing human she, we were talking about her just before mm-hmm. she um she's our garden manager she did uh, one of the courses with charlie um doesn't like calling herself a biodynamic farmer, doesn't feel like she fits those shoes yet, but is very much moving towards 
you know, an eclectic approach to organic um, farming. And um, but I won't put words in her mouth. I'm sure you can speak to her another mm. time. But she's an incredible person and um, really wonderful to be around. And I think she's going to make an excellent member of the team. Um, and so she's one of our founders. There's also Rose Lacoon Williamson, who is a business development manager, helping us secure some grants uh, and you know just organising all of our thinking in such a perfect way. Enoch Yates, which as I said, was is one of the partners here. He's an operations manager. And Laura Miller, who is a is a mental health accredited nurse, uh, worked in tertiary level acute mental health settings for ten years, and now is working with us. Um, so yeah, we, we comprise this really weird team if you look at it from outside. But um, for me, it makes total sense. And um, you know, moving into stage two, uh, our, our garden project, the aim is to start to build a glass house. Uh, which is going to be supplied by um, some wonderful people from BMD. They've given us some in-kind work. And um, also um, Marty from uh, Spacecraft Building Design. Um, So a a bit of a foundational building just across the road, as well as about two acres, I think that's correct, of um, farmland. Uh, And Lily will be, you know, hopefully sowing cover crop in the next couple of months after we get some terracing happening. Um, and that that's that acts as a bit of a uh, a, a bit of a pretty special place in the whole model, uh, mm. and that's where we conduct horticulture therapy, uh, you know, aimed at, um, at in the first instance people with disability through the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, yep. um, and also other marginalised populations like First Nation um, First Nations people. Um, uh, we've got we've got a really great Aboriginal liaison that we're working with to help us with that, and um, some other groups like um, um, first generation Australians, you know, coming to Australia and trying to work out how to integrate into this place. And so, you know, it, it looks like a couple of different therapy groups supported by myself as a psychologist and and Laura as a nurse and some other allied health professionals like occupational therapists um, to provide horticulture therapy in a in in a beautiful garden here in in Norton Summit, as well as growing vegetables, which will in turn return back to the hotel and create food security for those participants. Um, you know, there's a couple of things to pull apart there, one of which it's like, how do we increase hope? How do we increase um, a level of self-worth? How do we um, provide therapy in non-clinical spaces, which evidently don't work for people? How do we, you know design multidisciplinary approaches where everyone's connecting how do we give the therapists and the people working at this place quality of life there's so many things which we're hoping to address um, but that integration with the farm to table which is so absolutely bastardized in western world right now excuse anyone that is using that approach it's just my general feeling Reflect back on the nice things I said earlier, please. <laughs> don't, don't chastise yourself. Don't apologise. But, yeah, so we're trying to, to bring a human approach to uh, horticulture therapy and um, farm-to-table gardening, um, which you can start to see brings in some of those latent funding models um, like psychology, like occupational therapy, like community integration, like... Um, First Nations funding, like all these different ways in which the the state and federal government um, and the larger population want to help people, but the systems that we that exist are incredibly poor. 
And so I'm suggesting that we can leverage those, do them far better, and in a naturalistic environment, and also feed people. Well, I mean, it sounds like those elements have all been done before in yes. some way. I guess the unique part is that it's where it is, its association with a hotel, you know, who's running it, all those things. Um, are the, are the, are the, is, a, is a new recipe, isn't it? Which which yeah. sounds like it it will, will work. I know? think that definitely all of those elements individually have been done: horticulture therapy, organic farming, a hotel, allied health. Um, community integration, all of those have been done, but they're siloed. They're mm. all individually done. Maybe a couple of examples of one or two. There's this great place in um, Hobart called um, Hamlet, which um, uh, does um, hospitality training for marginalised people and obviously there's also a cafe. Um, and that's such a beautiful example of how two, two of those things can come together. But I'm talking about bringing it all together because... Western culture has become so siloed. We are so lonely. Lonely is the biggest killer. And also, we our systems don't work as well when we're individualised. Uh, hospitality doesn't speak to mental health, although mental health and mental ill health leaks into hospitality. So why wouldn't these things talk? And how is there no examples of this? I think that these things naturally should go together. How do we support hospitality, which in essence is about giving, but unfortunately has gotten to this weird place of commodification whereby even the most expensive restaurants aren't making money. So if, if you're telling me that you're running off a 5% profit margin in, in this really swanky restaurant and you're you know two weeks away from closing even though you're packed out every night, that tells me that there's something wrong with the system. And, you know... Even the most successful restaurants, the ones that are making money, it's at the cost of the environment, it's at the cost of the people, it's at the cost of the consumer. Um, so restaurants are broken, we know that. And the ones that are doing the right thing can't make any money. Um, you know, we only serve organic wine here. We do our very best to only serve organic food. Some, in some cases, it's not possible. But that means that our profit is very, very low. We pay people above the award wage. Um, we try and make sure that people don't work more than 40 hours a week, although that's not always successful. Um, but restaurants, hospitality venues are usury in nature. It's the only way to make them work. And people keep coming and sitting and enjoying them, but aren't looking at the reality in the face. And so, you know, if, we, if we're serious about climate action, if we're serious about... Um, social change, we have to address the, the, the biggest operators. That is hospitality. It's, it's, if, if you talk to any climate scientist and you say, what can I do? They say, well, change your food habits because farming is such an important thing with climate activism and change the way that you invest in your super in your banks. But it's like, hold on, where, where are the, where's the food being served the majority of the time? And how can you also make massive social change? Well, you, you change the biggest industry in the world, which is food. Well, and just to that point, <clears throat> you know, where's that food coming from? Is it made in, you know, in factories, industrial farming models, uh, which are, you know, reasonably or by definition high polluters? Mm -hmm. Or is that food coming from regenerative farms, you know, farm, farms that are doing things more naturally where low input costs generally equals less emissions and mm. also the sequestration of carbon mm. as a byproduct almost of growing nutritious food. That's right. So why, you know, the question is, 
not to you, but to the world or mm-hmm. to, to those in power. Like, why aren't we um, supporting those businesses that are producing nutritious food, which is helping obviously the health and the mental mental health, physical health of people, mm-hmm. and providing food, putting it on the table um, uh, at a good value, you know, that, that's, that's, that is of value to people. Mm. Um, and it's also helping with, the, with the, the, the climate situation. You know, why, why are they not listening? Why don't they understand? Mm. Are, there, are there other agendas at play or they just don't care? And it's just like everyone thinks that we're going to save the planet by having keep cups mm. then that's yeah, that's all we have straws. to do you know plastic yeah that's right like is 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 that good enough for them like is that is it because it all too hard for them i think that there's maybe um, not enough lateral thinking in in those places and the the answers are a little bit too hard at this point and um, i'm suggesting that we shouldn't rely on these people in power to find the answers for us but change it on our own little micro scale and um, that's why at the end of this mission, you know, it might take us three, four, five, six years to actually map this out and see what works and see what's a ridiculous idea. But we want to open source share the blueprint of a hospitality business, a farm that is organically grown and a, an, a mental health practice. Those three things together are the, you know, the cornerstone of, of a healthy life. And I would like to share that with people so that hospitality businesses can change their model mental health practices can be more integrative with society and farming becomes more palatable to the general population. Why do you think, again, sort of a related question and, and hunting a bit more on um, mental health and, and practitioners, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, doctors and their, the way they treat mental health? I mean, my experience... Um, not necessarily personally, but, but in other ways, mm. they food as a medicine is just not even on their radar. <laughs> it's like stuff you just put on a plate yeah. and eat. I've had conversations yeah. with psychiatrists and psychologists and put that on the table about you know food, organic food mm. being a um, being a way to improve <laughs> improve health. I mm. tell you, they looked at me like. I was from another planet. Really? I'm very sorry that was your experience. I think I definitely have had similar ones with um, medical practitioners. Um, I, would, I'm, I find that t- hard to believe in like the psychology work because it's about the biopsychosocial model. That's the b- basis of our concepts. And um, you know, bio being such a c- core component, you can't treat someone unless you're holistically looking at the way in which their life works. How are they sleeping? What are they eating? Um, what does their daily routine look like? What do their relationships look like? What are the protective factors involved? And, you know, I'm sorry that was your experience. It's definitely not the philosophy of the greater group. Um, but I definitely agree that there is an issue with the medicalization of um, humans and, and, you know, the answer being this beautiful little white capsule rather than all of this nutrient-dense, rich food, which is so important to us. And being in, in nature is obviously so important. If I think if more practitioners felt that they wouldn't ask people to come into these doctor's rooms. They would say, let's meet X. Let's In the park. That's right. In the, yeah. And, you know, there's obviously Great issues point. with confidentiality and that sort of thing, and that's why our garden's going to be designed really carefully 
um, to allow for those one-on-one or two-on-one conversations to occur in separate places, but they're still going to be in nature. They're still going to be connected to the soil. And if you're not doing that, then I think that's... Yeah, I think that set and setting are two really important things when it comes to delivery of healthcare. Or is that set? Set, so your mindset. Oh, mindset and setting and as setting. in locale. That's yeah. Right. yeah. And so the, your mindset that you're bringing into the therapy room um, or doctor's office or whatever it is really does inform an outcome. Other than, other than therapeutic rapport, that's probably the number one indicator or um, uh, outcome, the indicator of an out, a positive outcome variable. And so what you're bringing into the room is it really informs how we then can work with that. If you don't want to work on anything and don't want to talk to me, it's really hard for us to move forward. And then equally, arguably equally, setting is as important. And, you know, now we have doctor's offices which have maybe some fancy Japanese art um, or not even that. They have this, like, comfy but ugly chair. And (laughs) if you're working with children, there's some toys from Kmart. Um, And so how can any human that is, you know, Omnipotent humans are these amazing creatures. How can you fit their experience into these rooms? You can't. But if you look out that way, and when I take you to that view, you'll see what I mean. When you look out into the greater Adelaide Plains, nature has this way of reminding you you're both incredibly small and incredibly large. And all of a sudden, everything else that's going on for you has a new shift in focus. And so people that are really stuck, stuck is a big thing in mental health, um, you, you find them very quickly uncoupling and being unhooked from these really stuck emotions because, my God, it's a magnificent. The, the, the world is a magnificent place. And unfortunately, places where I've grown up in the north, the people that are most hard hit by mental health, those same people that aren't eating nutrient-dense food, also have these incredibly small worlds with backyards that are two by two and, um, you know, parks that have, like, really dodgy equipment in it and, you know, basketball centres which maybe are missing a hoop ring and, you know, your world is very small. But if you come up here, and to be honest, like, I've asked people, my participants, do you know where the Adelaide Hills are? And they're like, what's the Adelaide Hills? And it's like, well, that's really fucking sad uh, because this is a place of transformative nature and um, I'm, I'm saying that we can provide better healthcare in nature and in this place and you can replicate it in other places that are equally as impressive. It doesn't need to be the Adelaide Hills, could be anywhere. And um, service delivery should occur in more naturalistic spaces, otherwise we are completely missing the mark of the biopsychosocial model. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around The Kitchen Table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash The Kitchen Table. And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode. 
the what came up for me then was um, that you know I hear it time and time again that um, those who I'm trying to simplify who might be depressed as opposed to more broader um, mental illnesses, but depressed are often the antidote for that can often be a a focus if one can mm. sort of you know get to that point a, a focus on someone else as opposed to themselves you know so often um, you know going and helping I'm being again simplistic mm-hmm. helping in a soup kitchen helping in a community garden mm-hmm. sort of situation and actually getting out away from their own suffering or their own anxiety or their own depression their own history and experience and going in and, and, and essentially changing their perspective because they're getting away from sort of that um, generally a circular sort of story mm-hmm. that they're telling themselves into a scenario where it's someone else's story that's engaging, that they feel a sense of contribution and purpose, mm-hmm. which is, a, as I said, an antidote for depression. I'm not <laughs> a clinical psychiatrist. I don't, you know, I don't know the sort of nuts and bolts of that. But to me, having... Um, Knowing quite a few people where that has been, that has been very helpful. It kind of, it's not a dissimilar thing in a way. You know, going into a veg, into a like, you can either go and see someone in a room, as you say, with some token crap in there to try and make them feel comfortable, but it's still it's all about them. But if they're in an environment in which they they are the appealing and very open and com, you know sort of compassionate environment of nature, now that's that's a healing environment, isn't it? One hundred percent. Yep. You hit the nail on the head, and I don't think you need to be a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist to know that. I think it's an intuitive thing, and um, uh, there's so many things there. I <laughs> um, uh, no, so tell me, um, you've also got coming. Oh no, let's do it. Stay at Hospo because I I did a couple of years in a pub mm-hmm. in Sydney, a couple of different pubs, worked my ass off, you know, long hours and you know back to back shifts and the whole thing. Um, young and kind of needed the money, but it was good fun and I learnt so much and I've said it before, but I have to say, and I only said it to someone yesterday who said, I've never worked in a hospital and I said, man, you get your ass into a pub or a, mm. a bar or a restaurant and what you learn about human behaviour and psychology um, on, at that level is fascinating. Totally. You know? So again, I guess yeah. sort of um, if, if a public house where people um, who are working here and not just the customers are getting something out of it. I mean, there, there's, a, there's, there's potentially a healing and a, mm-hmm. and a perspective-changing opportunity right there as well. Most definitely. I think just to go back very quickly, I think that um, if we're talking about how therapy works in the garden, um, there has to be obviously individualised support to some degree with some participants. Some people aren't going to work well in groups, especially people that are experiencing borderline personality disorder, uh, you know, very... They want to sabotage things and find it difficult to enact with groups. Uh, but holistically, yes, what you're saying is very correct in the sense that we learn from each other. Uh, it's very hard to learn from your own experience. But when you sit next to someone else and they've got, oh, that, that's exactly my story as well. Oh, that's how I sound as well. And, and then you apply a framework which allows them to hang their experience from and you've also got your hands in the soil and you've also got the sun on your face and you've also got a belly full of healthy vegetables, all of a sudden things are changing on its head very quickly. 
We, sorry, go, go, go. Yeah, no. Hospo, more hospo. Yeah, sorry, excuse me. No, no, no. I, I just go. want to address that very quickly. No, that's great. That's great. No, no, I've got something I want to add to that, but you go. Hospitality, yeah. I think that um, arguably it's um, become, you know, the, the job that people do while they're studying, which is really sad. And that's, bec- and you know, at this point in history, post-COVID, if that's what we're calling it now. Um, <laughs> the era. It's post-COVID era. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we are dropping, like hospitality professionals are dropping like flies and that's because they've decided that, oh, no one values us, cool. I already knew that, but now I know it for sure. So see ya. Uh, chefs, there's, there's such a shortage, it's insane. And that's because one, the work conditions are absolutely bullshit. And two, um, where, you know, unless you're a tweezer chef that's getting 100K a year. Um, What's it? There's other ones that had, like this yeah, year's tweezers. tweezers. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but if, even if you're a tweezer chef, you're working 80 hours it a week. It looks good, though. <laughs> <laughs> you always walk out a bit hungry. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, and those working in front of house, they've always been undervalued. And so mm. to address what you said originally, I think hospitality should be like military service. You know, To understand people is to understand yourself and to work in hospitality is to understand yourself and other people. Um, and... We need to fix the way that hospitality professionals are treated. And that's as important as how we treat the people in the garden. And so how do we empower people to have meaningful lives in these positions of great power as a hospitality professional? Well, we need to pay them better. We need to give them better outcomes. We need to like, break their weeks up so they're not just on the floor for 40 hours. Can we give them a work, some work in the garden? Can they be a support worker for a staff member? Can they um, do some hospitality training with a participant once a week? Like, how can we break up their week so that they have meaningful work that's also paid better, that's also more meaningful for everyone involved? Um, but yes, hospitality, incredibly important, almost the most important thing I'm talking about. And, and how do we value everyone in this food system rather than just the people that are you know, experiencing the most marginalisation? Well, just to get back to the food and the mental health, I mean, there's, as you, you sort of mentioned there earlier, there's, there's plenty of studies on the, <clears throat> the impact, positive impact of organic, you know, chemical-free, highly nutritious food on mental health, quality of life, mm. um, of mental sort of quality of life and, 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 and function. Um, again, <clears throat> you know, that's not – I don't think that's really highlighted enough. Mm. Uh, I don't, as, as, again, as a, as a tool for healing and, and for, um, uh, you know, th- th- <laughs> I don't know, call it food therapy. Just call it normal. Let's just call it normal. Shouldn't that be normal? No, 100%. I think that I'd like to know the reasons why you think that's the case. Um, I definitely have a couple of ideas um, which I'm willing to share with you. Now, you tell me. So I think that this is um, sort of out of sight, out of mind, because there are some larger um, powers at play, one of them being uh, pharmaceutical companies. They very much have a monopoly on the doctor, um, you know, most will deny that, but I think that it takes an incredibly strong person, and definitely not the majority, um, to fight against the the, the wave. Of, you know, if you're talking about research of healthy food, there's quadruple the amount on the benefits of diazepam, and so <laughs> if we're going to go with evidence-based research, which is what clinicians like myself pride ourselves on doing, well, we say, well, yeah, food is definitely important, but look at all this evidence for diazepam. And so let's give you that. But also you should go to sleep earlier 
And it's like, well, you, you kind of have to tackle one or the other at one point. You have to say, well, let's actually try without medication. Let's try without these other things. Um, but it's not the easiest solution. That's a very hard solution because in order to promote healthy eating, we actually have to help the entire system of their life. We can't just say, I prescribe healthy eating. But that person's on a fixed income, so how are they going to afford Naringa biodynamic vegetables? So that, that's not an option to them. There's no like food subsidy for organic vegetables that exists for a doctor to prescribe. So they're kind of at a, a bit of an impasse there. So the solution actually for them is the medication um, rather than the, these solutions because we do have a monopoly on sickness rather than healthiness. Health doesn't pay, sickness pays. More. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, and I'm having some um, of your delicious... Um, sparkling water which is making me burp a little <laughs> of the pie i had up the road so no excuse me i'll try and burp the other way i hope it's the most delicious um water yeah. ever because and bubbles the bubble it's the adelaide hills air bubbles in there <laughs> yeah. that make it really something i think we have four or five different filter filters on that water so it better be the best damn water <laughs> it's be the, it'll be the emptiest water in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's empty of anything except just h2o yeah that's all we need <laughs> Um, I think that's the major factor. I think neoliberalism, commodification, how we, um, how how our, how our system works is a is a major issue, and so that's why I'm not proposing we just build a garden and solve the problems or build a, um, a allied health practice and solve the problems. I'm talking about systemic change, which comes from blueprinting a, a new model of society, and I think that my version of that comes from a hospitality lens it might look like something else from someone else's perspective i'm not saying this is the answer to all of these problems i'm saying this is how i solve it from my end you know maybe an architect has a better way of integrating their world into these different cornerstones of society but what i am saying is that these will happen from grassroots levels they will not happen from the top the top is only fixated on how we possibly generate the economy and the economy needs to be running growth growth yeah, and so, you know, I think you can do some of those things with the model I'm talking about, but it doesn't look the same way. And so that's scary. Venturing into something which is the unknown elicits fear. Fear of things that we don't understand is something we have to be conscious of. Otherwise, we, don't, we just label them as wrong. I want to jump into the, 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 the um, coves, the spicy flu. Just thinking about your, just putting together a few of those concepts, which is not new to me by any means but certainly just got me thinking about you know the impact that COVID had because of government mandates and rules and restrictions and so on you know on hospitality mm. and and what that what the those same rules and regulations the impact it had on mental health mm. of those in hospo and, and those outside of hospo who were just you know isolated um, losing jobs just in pick an industry, you know, mm. um, that that kind of what you're proposing again is, is kind of an antidote for for that. As long as you know you can run it, you're not mm. shut down. No. I'm not just saying you, but I'm mm. saying anyone with such a wonderful initiative that is life giving, life saving, you know, purpose a purposeful. Um, Initiative, and then no. Nah, if you're a, even look like a hospitality thing, you need to shut down. 
Yeah, well, that's another reason why this is so important because you have to diversify your profit if you're going to exist in a neoliberalist world. And hospitality places don't have diversification of profit. They operate just on the, whether or not you come in for a coffee that day. And so what I'm saying is, like, we've got an open-air facility which is going to be, you know... I should preface this by saying these two entities are separate. That across the road is a not-profit organisation. Okay. Cool. Um, Good call. Yeah, because they need, to, they need to act separately and with autonomy and with... Um, integrity in order to not um hospitality is corruptible and we are all corruptible and that's why these need to be separate entities that have their own boards in order to understand how this finance flows that's not to say that someone that works at the pub can't also be hired out by the clinic to then to, uh, create a profit revenue stream that benefits this place but they, these money this money needs to be separate in order to protect the people at the core of it um, so there's different governance and, and legal kind of structure, which is very sensible, but then there's the overarching principles and the synergies and the the relationships that are the glue that holds all those things together. So you've right. got your sort of your, – you're not your fallback position, but you've just got your, 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 your sensible structure for worst case and any case scenario. Um, and then the – not the less tangible, but I guess the more flexible and the more dynamic and adaptable – um, relationships mm-hmm. that you know, formal or otherwise, that, mm. that 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 are in place. Yeah, we've already had offers come in through um, the state government um, from, from two different organisations within state government to provide us some block funding, um, which is amazing. Uh, people, are, I've put this idea out there, and people have run with it. So it's definitely that people are hungry for it. Um, how that money is then distributed into this model is is very particular because at the end of the day, it could very easily turn into, you know, this person, call him Jay Marinus, turns into this megalomaniac that decides that all of this money is mine and that's obviously the last thing we want to do. Um, and so these there needs to be protections and checks and balances in place to allow for this sort of model to work well. Um, I guess to, to address what you're saying about hospitality, um, yeah, this place might get shut down, but that place won't. Uh, all through COVID, I didn't not work a day during COVID because mental health was a, um, an essential service. Um, and so open air, mental health, we need to keep going. And so if this gets shut down, send all the workers next door. Let's increase our, 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 our program base. We'll pay the workers, continue to pay the workers through that program so that the hotel can stay running through that. So it's kind of... COVID-proofing. <laughs> COVID-proofing. Yeah. Well, it's building in resilience. That's Just right. on the government funding thing too, you know, being involved in land care for many years and still am to some degree and <clears throat> other sort of organisations that have had government support, financial support, schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, my children are, are at uh, Steiner School. <clears throat> and what I see and experience is and this is not a warning necessarily, it's just kind of think something my experience is, mm. you know, once, it's not a bad thing, but once, you know, one accepts government funding, then there are checks and balances, conditions and caveats that are put in place that may comp- uh, compromise the original intention mm. of a project that has mm. been funded with, with mm. government. I've seen that many times where... 
um, to get the funding, different languages used and different you know things are put in place just to kind of get the funding understandably. <clears throat> but if even if things go well, there's still often a compromise that has to be made or is made down the track or the fine print that's not read properly mm-hmm. or if things go to the shit, then there's that kind of um, you're beholden to, to the government mm. um, very much so. So I guess it's just something that I've experienced um, not personally in my business but just organisations mm. and it's... It's kind of like, and then often, especially in land care, has been the, been been the thing is the more that that is funded by government, <coughs> directly or indirectly, um, the sort of not the lazier it gets, but the kind of the more dependent it becomes because the next time there'll be more funds, and then the the structure and the the perspective is is starting to sort of twist and change as. To, so that becomes a normal thing, you know. And then when the shit goes down, change of government even, you know, then you've got a whole different. Um, well, it just doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't build resilience. Sure, you know. I guess um, I should have said that. You know, these are a couple of things that have come through. We are, we're only considering them, and um, totally. No, I'm not saying don't. I'm just. I guess it's just. It just came up for me then. But but I guess that I should also say that we can't expect that every program is going to be able to be funded in that way. So when we build this model, it has to be, as you say, resilient, and it cannot be reliant on these sorts of handouts. It has to be something which I can say, yep, pick this up, take it there, and do all these things, and you can you can make it happen. So I think that I take your point very um, seriously. Uh, and, I, you know, once again, I have to catch myself by saying, well, this can't be just like, like this... Um, ideal so to speak it needs to be uh, actionable and it needs to be um mobile like you need to be able to mobilize it anyone should be able to mobilize this uh, and that's how we make communities that are also more re- reliable and sustainable i've just noticed how much extension cord you brought in here with you <laughs> we we could have actually done this down the scrub about two hundred meters away. We don't do things by halves here, Charlie. <laughs> just in case we were going to do a mobile interview and just start walking over the garden there. We could, we could. Um, tell me about the um, Topsoil Festival you've got coming up. Yeah, so Topsoil Festival weeks away. Weeks away. Yeah, fifteenth yeah. of May. Uh, it may have already passed by the time this airs. Um. um it, oh, yeah, it's only two weeks away, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it might have actually. But we can – I can do a promo on, on socials and stuff. Yeah, Thank cool. You. Make sure you send me some stuff. I will. So Topsoil Festival, it's funny, a bit of a chicken and the egg thing. We, we started the festival last year well before the garden had started um, because we knew, obviously, what the values were. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't done my research enough and I probably, um, probably shouldn't say it, but I'd say it's one of the – one of the bigger regenerative farming festivals in Australia. Cool. Um, you know, we, we get around four or 500 people come through the door and um, we've got 30 different farmers paired with chefs this year. And so the basis of it is farmers first. That's very much the, the tagline that we're using. And it's about, well, these bloody tweezer chefs, they've got all this... They've got all this limelight, and what are they doing with it? Well, they're just getting rich and famous off it, and that's okay. I, I have no, no cross to bear in that regard. You know, use what you, you've been given to do what you can do, right? But um, that's not really spreading the message of regenerative farming, um, or at the very least, it's not giving the full picture. And regenerative farming happens at the farming level, 
and we need to put these people in the spotlight so they can talk about not just the great things that I can do on a plate, but what are, what are the struggles? How, that's one question. How do, you, how do you value the whole vegetable or the whole animal? That's another. And how, how do we uncover uh, or you know, pull the sheep from over the very dark industry that exists underneath? And only by asking the farmers, and I think that's what you do perfectly, Charlie, is uncovering these things. And, and in order to get that message to the guest, which is right in front of you, we've got to put these things on because otherwise it's just the chef or the waiter talking to you. We need to hear these things from the farmers. You know, there's this stat that went around a while ago, not a stat, um, uh, th- this, this idea that we have 60 seasons left. You know, yeah, sixty harvests left. Sixty harvests yeah. left. I kept hearing that, and um, I didn't understand. It's a why. bit ambiguous. Yeah, and so I asked a couple of farmers, and they kind of gave me the, my a bit more understanding on soil derogation and um, uh, you know the the idea of not being able to use topsoil anymore, given the fact that we're leaching so much nutrient from it. And so I was enraged. That I didn't know that at the age of 30 or whatever. And I was like, come on, let's do something about it. And so that's where the festival came from. And I decided to name it the same as the garden because I thought that just made sense to me. And Alyssa Mitiger, um, Alyssa Burns, sorry, I should say, she um, is the one that was like, it's called Topsoil Man. Like, that's what we're calling it. It makes <laughs> sense. And so, yeah, it's a farming festival where we put really famous chefs with the farmer, but only to help the farmer expand their profile so we've got jesse spivey from my grandma ben lachlan colwell was the henley farm guy um adam james rough rice from tassie luke burgess from tassie you know a bunch of really great heads that um are coming along that are sort of zero waste chefs that believe in this um that can put the farmer on a bit of a pedestal um so that's day two matt stone Matt Stone, unfortunately, he had to, he double booked himself, but he's locked in for next year. Matthew. Yeah. He's a lovely bloke, too. Yeah, he's yeah, now he's up at um, Byron Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Working with a cousin of mine. Mm-hmm. Cool. Up there. Yeah. No, he's a um, lovely bloke. So, big shout out to him. Yeah. Get your ass down there next year, Matthew. Yeah. And uh, That's a, pity. a lovely friend, Ben Shuri, he's going to come next year from Attica. Um, he came and had lunch with me here, and I told him the whole idea, and he was very cordial and kind. Um, and, and very generous with his time and gave me some really lovely advice. Uh, he's locked in for next year. And, you know, we, we hope to bring these names not because we're fangirls, even though I do really love what these people do, and I think they do represent what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dan I, whenever, Hunter? Have you got no, him? I don't know Dan Hunter. Down at... Um, down at... Um, oh, I'm going to have a mental blank now. Down outside um, near Colac... Uh, near Colac... Um, Oh, I've got a minute left. I have to put it in the show notes. Connect me, connect me, yeah. He's awesome. Um, yeah, no, it was, he, he, he was like voted best restaurant in Australia there a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Yeah, and one of his, um, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name either, but it was a couple of years ago now. She came to our biodynamic workshop there um, in whenever we did it down there. Um, oh, I can't remember where we did <laughs> <laughs> my, my memory's gone all bloody. Oh, Bray. Um, Bray. Bray. Bray, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bray, 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 Yeah, he's awesome. Lovely garden there. Him, yeah, yeah. Oh, good, good guy. Oh, no, we should chop we should notes on all that. Um, and then uh, not just, just before before I forget, because I'm going to, mm-hmm. um, a good buddy of mine, Matt Moran, a 
I'm going to lasso him into this, mm-hmm. but four years ago, um, another buddy, Tommy Herschel, who I did, interviewed and I did a, did a webinar with the other day, we put on a, a farming um, retreat for about eight or 10, 12 farmers, and, 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 and not even just farmers, a couple of mates um, mm-hmm. at our farm at Burua. Mm-hmm. And we got there on a Friday afternoon and we had a few beers and it was very casual, but the intention of the whole thing was a farm tour eat good food and talk about the stuff men don't talk about. Mm. Okay? So Tommy was a he he's a, he's got a organization called Find Your Feet and he goes to schools and he speaks with young men generally and I think sometimes there's sort of um, young girls involved in but it's mainly the men that he kind of focuses on because they're often the ones that sort of outwardly have this, you know, toxic masculinity stuff going on and all the pigot pressure and he, he goes, runs them through a program. It's fascinating what what mm. comes up for these guys and then they and and when they stand on the line as he says and they talk about what's going on for them mm-hmm. and they have the bravery and the courage to do it in front of their mates. Um, it's just fascinating stuff. So he's really well versed in that anyway, so there's all this stuff applies to men, Very right? Cool. Us grown up boys. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to another thing about rites of passage, but that's another conversation. But <clears throat> anyway, so Tommy and I ran this weekend. Well, Tommy ran it. I was sort of hosting mm-hmm. it. And it was so good for the boys. We had good food. We chatted. There were tears. There was mm-hmm. laughs. There was a whole thing. And then we finished with this particular exercise, um, which had pretty much everyone in tears. Um, and we want to do it. And it was, a, it was a mental health therapy. You know, it was like, you know, um, it was wonderful. And we're going to do it with chefs. Okay. Oh, We're going to do it with Chef, so I'll get in touch with you too Please. about that. Um, we hope to, to do it later in the year. I can. Yeah, well, look, it's, it's, it'll be at our farm, and I've mentioned it before, and it's kind of keeps on every year goes by and go, Tommy, we haven't done it yet. Um, getting a bunch of chefs, because as you well know, um, this is even before COVID, mm. you know, the mental health issues and the, 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 the occurrence of suicide was. Mm. I think it's only just behind farming or something mm-hmm. in terms of numbers a day or a year. And so we thought, how can we help that, you know? Mm. Get, and the thing, getting farmers and getting, sorry, chefs back on farm, which is what you're doing, you're connecting the chef and their trade and their skill. Well, you know, what makes them skillful? What are they dealing with? They're dealing with food. Who grows it? The farmer. You know, if it wasn't for the farmer, the chef wouldn't have stuff to deal with, would they? You know, so what a wonderful... Um, festival you're putting together and so sorry who, who else is, is um, anyone else of note or any farmers particular farmers that are involved yeah um, some amazing farmers Naringa's coming Aaron Klein is uh, going to be here um, and he's paired with Luke Burgess uh, and I think they're going to do some golden beets I think that's the plan the most exciting one that I'm um, ready for is uh, Mooney Restaurant there in Mulunga a couple of Taiwanese people Oh, yeah. Amazing humans, the most one of the, some of the most amazing chefs I've, I've ever met. Um, What's all Mooney? Mooney, yeah, M U N I. It's in Wollonga on the main street, um, and they're cooking, um, t- I guess, Taiwanese fusion food, and they're using only organic foods and um, only organic wines, and uh, they are paired with Jauma Farm, James Erskine. Do you know James? No. Oh, you would love him. What farm? What's it called? Jauma. J-A-M-A. I have heard of Jauma Farm. Yeah. yeah. Or Yauma. 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 It? But it's Jauma. Um, and he's a, he's a um, grape grower, um, cherry farmer, um, and winemaker. And Is all this stuff on, on a website? Where can people find this stuff? Yeah. Because I, I, I want to find it too. Jauma. Well, no, just, just, just like who's on the, who's on the yeah, schedule. It's, it's all on the, on the hum- Humanitics um, website. 
Okay. And on, the, also, on, the, on the ticket pay, yeah. in the ticket yeah. thing. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, there's also going to be a program uploaded, a program guide that you can you can see online that if you want to review that in past, um, which we've just finished typing up. And yeah, Jauma and Mooney, uh, they are digging up some daikons that James co-plants with his vines. And they're the biggest daikons you've ever seen. Mm. Um, and so creating biodiversity in his vineyard, and that's going to create a bit of a talking point on the table. They're pickling those. They're creating a bit of a daikon radish cake with some shio um, vinegar sauce and some jauma wine grenache um, uh, vinegar as well. And it's going to be this crunchy little ball of deliciousness. And, and, and they will speak so from the heart about the importance of regenerative agriculture. And that, that to me, will be such a beautiful example on the day um, and yeah other farmers like Nomad Farms Tom and um, his partner um, who are raising cattle and chickens and um, doing it in such a perfect way N- Nomad will be paired with the guys from RK restaurant um, Zach Goddard um, I, I'm not sure if Jake Kelly is coming as well but um, the guys from RK are coming and they're, and and this other little producer, um, Ruby McGlashan, she's a good friend of ours. She knits beanies and different different um, clothes, and she uses Nomad Farm wool. Cool. And so on one table, we're going to have someone knitting and showing you how to knit your own um, uh, garments. garments. <laughs> and then there'll be someone preparing some beef from the farm, and then there'll be mm. the farmer talking about the importance of all of this latitude mm. and, and how that can mean something to you as a punter. And for me, that's the importance about learning one, one-on-one um, from each individual farmer, which you get the beautiful privilege of doing, and, and so have I, but only because I've forced my way into it. I'm not a farmer, um, but I've forced my way into it because I see myself as a bit of a, um, a person with a platform that can help this conversation start. Well, you're like an interface. Yeah. You know, like, again, for farmers who who are growing food as opposed to commodities, <clears throat> who want to again connect with the eaters, then you, 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 you're the lubricant between the two. You're kind of giving them a platform and, yeah. the, um, and the opportunity to connect, which is wonderful. That's really a generous way of saying middleman. <laughs> like, no, I only use the word middleman when I know that middleman is taking a huge cut out of the middle. Yeah, and just, and just to reiterate that, everyone that brings produce... Um, tickets are $50, which I think is reasonable for, you know, the tastings and then the panel discussion and then five live bands. How many? Is it one day? Uh, this is two days. I'll explain the, the first day in a moment. But, um, you know, all of, the, all of the produce which is produced and provided for the tastings are paid for. Uh, all the wine which is brought for tastings is paid for. There's no scalping going on. There's no us taking the ticket money. The ticket money goes back to the farmer. Um, so that's something you can feel assured by because I think that there's nothing worse than middlemen like capitalising on these sorts of things because they're creating the culture. I'm just helping it get here. Um, and, you know, the scene, it gets some, some lovely press along the way. and some. And Where's it held? Here, just right in front of us. Get there, out of there'll here. be a big um, uh, marquee, marquee here and it goes all the way down the laneway, which I'll show you a bit later. Yeah, let's go for a walk. Um, yeah. I forgot what we were saying. <laughs> oh, you were talking about, was it day one or day two? So Yeah, so this is day two I'm talking about. So day yeah. two is from 12 to 2, these workshop, uh, these market stalls with the tasters, and you can also purchase things from each producer. So some wool from um, Nomad Farm, for example, or ask Ruby to commission her to 
to knit you a thing or um, take home, you know, um, some veggies from Naringa or um, uh, some, some lamb from Cockatoo Creek or whatever it might be. Um, and so that's the two hours of tastings and experience. And then there's a, a, a panel discussion with, you know, Stuart Whitecross is coming from, from Voyager talking about broadacre farming. Um, we've got Damien Sullivan from Wandu, Aboriginal so- food from Damien's so- coming. Yep. Awesome. Food sovereignty. I was going to try and interview him today, okay. <clears throat> but he's working. Oh, sure. Mm. It's a shame. Yeah, lovely guy. Um, Bandara Berkshires, Lauren from Bandara Berkshires. Yeah, she's ace. Um, Ollie Edwards, who was my old chef at the Aristologist, who's now at Hazel Melbourne. Um, he has a company called Good Fish, Bad Fish, which is like a sustainable fisheries website. So you can like work out what fish is currently good to eat as far yeah. as like sustainability. Um, so like he's a big proponent of Australian salmon, for example. Um, and so like we put all these people together to do a bit of a panel discussion to, to explain what regenerative farming means to them. So another way to make you know, social change more palatable to these people the guests that are coming uh, and then a couple of bands to finish to like round off the day to you know all of these conversations which we're intending to spark in those first three or four hours then to go off and integrate in your own way in in, in ways which are meaningful and also mm-hmm. digestible to you because there's nothing worse than going to like um you know a, a workshop that was just really boring and didactic and like i didn't learn anything from that <laughs> and just like but i'm talking about integrating social change and wrapping it in pop culture is generally the idea. And so that's day two. Day one, um, I'll, I'll be a bit more brief, sorry, is... Um, no, it's good. ...is workshops. So we, we did one day last year and we tried to fit the workshops into all of this chaos and it was a nightmare. And so this year we've, we've decided that this, it's actually two-day, this thing. And so day one is three workshops, three different ways in which you can bring sustainable eating to your life. So composting by Natalia Griffney, who's an expert in the field, and seed saving um, by our very own Lily Stevens and Brooklyn Mathers, um, Mabbitt, sorry, Brooklyn Mabbitt, um, and, um, and, and preserving and pickling um, pre- presented by Andrew Douglas of Brew Ferments. Um, and so three ways that you can, in your own life, take these learnings home uh, and then ending in a, in, a, in a lunch presented by Adam James Rough Rice um, and his beautiful pickles and delicious food. Um, James Erskine, also the same guy, is going to be presenting a farmyard ballad at that lunch as well. So He's singing? He's, he's playing the flute. Right. And then Banjo will be playing the guitar. And then they'll be singing. Banjo will be playing the guitar. Ban- yeah. And that's while you eat this beautiful, <laughs> nutritious lunch, um, you're going to be hearing a, a ballad about the importance and the integral nature of farming and art. Cool. So it's quite a quite a um, it's there's a lot to it, isn't there? As in terms of le- level, you've got arts and and arts and crafts, literally, mm. and food mm. and and the I guess the wisdom of farmers and the chefs. That's awesome. And it's on. Is that a Saturday Sunday? Yeah, Saturday the fourteenth of May. Is Can we one. come across next year? Please do. We would love to have you. That'd be awesome. I might have a few good, interesting people that you I can hook you up with at least as well. Um, but, just yeah, we can talk about that off off yeah. the line um, for next year, but that sounds awesome. I think you'd also um, obviously 
that's just the most obvious thing that comes to mind, but you, I think you would facilitate a panel discussion really beautifully. I think you bridge those worlds in such an amazing way, and I think I couldn't think of anyone better if you if you felt so inclined. Oh, Jay, stop it! <laughs> but no, this is this is this is this is actually working well, formulating uh, for next year because mm. the Taste of Australia is on, in that first week of May. Yeah, always busy. We have last this year and last year we had our workshops, and it was kind of um, we just. There was a lot of um, people who probably would have liked to have got to the tied up with doing other other things involved mm. with that, and Maggie Beer is one of them. Mm. Anyway, um, so next year I'm thinking do Taste of Australia, then do workshops, <clears throat> and then that we might land on on your weekend. Now we can talk about that um, a bit later on. Mm-hmm. That is fantastic. I'm just thinking of the time. It's mm. we've been here an hour and an hour and a bit now. Um, I'm just making, going through my little brief notes. Uh, oh, chefs! Do you think that chefs? A kind of, in your world and ones you've experienced, <clears throat> you know, good, <laughs> good, bad tweezers, chefs, whatever. <laughs> um, are they kind of getting the connection with food generally? Is it just the top chefs that are? Are there? Is there a wave of? I mean, you mentioned there's sort of there's a there's less and less chefs, but do you think generally there's more of an appreciation or acknowledgement or a conscientious consciousness about quality of food and that actually being important, not just churning out mm. stuff, you know. Like and still they can still have a plate of yummy food that looks colourful and looks good, but if it's if it's yep. if it's from the the supermarket, yep. you know, I guess Or just like a, an order sheet that comes yep. from some place which no one knows where it's from. That's right. I think that there is arguably a huge amount of chefs that do care about these things. Um, unfortunately not all. And some of the best restaurants I've been to and I've said, Where are these carrots from? It says heritage carrots. And they're like, I'll find out. I ask the chef. I'm like, cool, no worries. And then they come back and they're like, no one knows. And this is, you know, a Michelin star chef. Not very heritage. And the ca- and the carrot dish costs thirty five dollars for four carrots. And it's like, <laughs> how have we got to this place? How? Or having a lend? That's what's happening. Yeah. And I think that no, I think it would be injustice if I said that there wasn't a huge amount of chefs that do care. Mm. The issue is that as owner operators, and I'm, you know, I'm talking about myself as well, we do not provide a framework to allow them to do these things. If we want them to do that, but we also want cost of goods to be thirty percent, it's like, well, how do you do that? You can't do that. So. Let's give people the opportunity to actually do the things they believe in. And no wonder there's such a mental health crisis. That being one of the issues, you, you, ha- you have this group of people that believe in feeding others and caring for others. And then they come in with this really great intention of following all of these dreams. And then you just slash them at the knees by saying, we have to also follow all these other rules. And then in order to make this work, you're going to have to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And then... They're just left as a pile of whatever at the end of it. And so it's all well and good that we say, yeah, try and do these things. These things are important, but we also have to give them the opportunity to do that. And I think the only way we can do that is not about raising prices and expecting the customer to pay for it. That's absolutely bullshit as well. The customer should have access to healthy, regenerative farmed food at a reasonable price. It's not about this new culture of pushing it back onto the client. The client is always wrong now, apparently. It's about striking a balance and finding a way, a new model, a new story of, of, of making food accessible, but also chefs being able to serve this food at a reasonable price. 
I think we need to work really hard on making that happen. And I'm not saying that I've got all of the answers. I'm just asking the questions. Is this maybe a way we can go? And I'd really love to hear from other people that have had other ideas on how they make that happen. What about there's <clears throat> there's um, a couple of restaurants I know. One being Sean's Panorama in in Bondi, and Sean has um, a farm in the Blue Mountains, mm. and and a portion of the food that 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 ends up in the kitchen comes from his farm. You know, just just see that as a model, and that is. Have you been to Sean's? No, You've got to go. It I is will. it is a beautiful beautiful place. It's smallish. But you go in one way and you go down a hallway and in and around. Anyway, it's, it's a funny way to get there. And, it, and the, every time I've been there, it's fascinating because you're not just having dinner yourself mm. or, l- or lunch. You're having dinner with everyone mm. because everyone's going, oh, check that. <laughs> Is that good? Yeah, how good? Oh, man, have you, had, have you tried that? It's such a – it's actually a really – it's a wonderful community experience just eating there. Um, d- have you seen that elsewhere? Does it work? Is it, is it a way of kind of – um, keeping costs down, not for the sake of keeping costs down, but just a sensible way to go. It's a direct line of sight and it just happens to be a more cost-effective way of doing it? No, it's not more cost-effective and I know that firsthand because I worked at the Summertown Aristologist for a few years. Do you, are you aware of this restaurant? It's in Summertown, so just before you raid I saw it on the Google thing when we were trying to get here just before. Arguably one of the best restaurants in Australia, I would say. But get out that's, of here. That's, I'm biased, I guess. Um, some of the most meaningful, thoughtful food all produced in a organic biodynamic garden really? uh, and the garden is maybe is it open days. this afternoon uh, what day is it today Wednesday no um, Friday Saturday Sunday and so that's part of their motto it's like they're saying that people should only work X amount of time um, and Wednesday you know Thursday and then Friday they're sort of in the garden picking peeling washing um, the chefs in front of house. That's, I was at the front of house there, and I was, you know, a big part of working in the garden, and that definitely informed a lot of my thinking around our own project. But to eat there is actually quite expensive. Um, and secondly, they haven't nailed everything. They're trying really hard, and just like I said at the beginning of it, we shouldn't chastise ourselves. We're all trying, but you know, the one acre patch feeds the garden, feeds the restaurant about you know eighty to ninety percent of of the year, like entirely. But it's unquantifiable how much that costs to, to hire gardeners to make sure that the, everything is incredibly well farmed, that you're not losing crop because you're not using pesticides, all of that stuff. And so by the time it actually gets to the restaurant, it's more expensive than ordering off the sheet. And so it's not an easier way of doing it. Um, and, you know, they're only in their fourth or fifth year, so maybe they'll work out a better way of doing it. But, um, you know, it still comes back to my, what I said at the beginning, which is like, why can't everyone access that place? And so, yes, these things are great. People are being fed really nutritious food and also you're getting a really great experience, but it's not cheaper and it's not, it's not the solution is what I'm saying. We still have to keep thinking. Okay. Well, it's good to know. <clears throat> I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I guess the, the farmer in me thinks, you know, we've got a lot of land of Burua and it, it's Burua and it's, you know, not, it's not the Adelaide Hills yeah, and it hasn't access, yeah, access, but, you know, I just think the kind of the, the theory of a lot of land, a lot of food could be grown because mm. I guess you know when when the, when a chef orders off a sheet, then they are um, the, the lettuce. Say they're ordering lettuce that's come from a farm that probably just doing lettuce mm. and doing it you know, on scale, mm. and so low cost of production, and that that flows through to the price. So all of the things they they order on that sheet, again, are you know uh, are being produced by specialists mm. um, and so you know 
that's that that is often a you know it's a cheaper way to um, to produce mm. if on scale. But yet it makes sense, you know, in a gardening situation where mm. intensive labour, you're only going to have a certain amount, um, and it, seasonally mm. you you are going to have some holes. And again, I guess if you unless you're really strict about your seasonality. Uh, there are, you know, customers expect certain things to be on a menu or certain ingredients in certain dishes that you just, you either can't grow, mm. you know, or you, I mean, especially, say, proteins, like you're not going <laughs> to, you know, they can't grow salmon in the back mm. garden no, there, you no. know, so there's those other bits too. Yeah, they, they, they're incredibly high integrity though, so they totally. only will serve what they can grow or things that are in season from mm. places like Naringa as like subs, like um, to uh, substitute if they're not able to attain it in their own garden. And fish comes from Fairfish SA and, um, you know, it's incredibly high value set, to a high bar to set as far as values and dining. Um, but, you know, I, I would say, and I have had these conversations with the guys that own it, it's like, well, why can't we get participants in the garden make the garden a non-profit mm. and then do this model there. And then all of a sudden your garden is offset by these other latent funding so that your restaurant all of a sudden isn't that expensive. And so that's what I'm suggesting. There's got to be a way, isn't there, that because, that, that, again, the thing that complicates things is money and the trade or the, or the, the, the transaction of time for money or, or something for money. You know, if there's, if, as you say, if people are in there working and not expecting a wage, but the, the value of their time is still high and, and it is acknowledged and there's some other other way that they are reimbursed for their time. You know, I don't know what that is, but, you know, I mean, even a profit share situation too. That's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. Mm. It's a cooperative or mutual style of funding so that yep. it, you can go in there, get your primary health care, but also receive something in return. Mm. Yeah. And I guess it's putting a value on that primary health care too and people understanding, like, you know, the value, not dollar value, but the value to their health that in some way has a dollar value that, you know, they won't appreciate until they're older when they're not going to the doctor, mm. you know, yes. for their health problems. Yes. I'm just conscious of time. I've Just one more question. The, the um, uh, oh, I can't read my own writing. <laughs> Your health practice. Um, mm-hmm. What do you call it? The, um, uh, something health practice. So we're going to call Started it. Started with A. Oh. He said um, something health practice. Allied health. Allied, allied, health. allied yeah. health practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't so even read it. That doesn't even look like allied. That's, that's the model that we use, allied, allied health, health being physiotherapy, um, yeah. speech pathology, occupational therapy, uh, and psychology, nursing. There's a bunch of different ones. But Do you need a, like a, um, a structure for that? Like would you have – yeah, so yeah. you actually have – is it going to be some of it here? Is it going to be some of it? So the community centre, which I'll show you, okay, is cool. giving us a room yeah, in, the, cool. in the short term. Mm. And then in the long term, we're also building a little site, like a, a, a glass house, which is going to be a therapy room as well. And then long term, we're looking at the post office across the road as a bit of a, cool. a, a place we can stretch into because the post office is moving. Um, so all within the village of Norton Summit. Is there an old, cool brick post office? Wait till I show you. Yeah, there's so many of those that have just gone gone to an agency and a news agent or something like that. It's sad, mm-hmm. I reckon. Um, I, now, Jay, what I didn't tell you about is after we finish this mm-hmm. um, shortly, we do a little short Q&A. It's a rapid-fire kind of thing for our Patreon members on, cool. on um, those who support our 
our uh, podcast, The Regenerative Journey, with you know $10 a month and mm-hmm. they um, two coffees. Mm-hmm. It's probably actually two cheap coffees, isn't it? <laughs> um, shitty, like, you know, blend 43 coffees mm-hmm. at, a, at a greasy spoon. Um, <clears throat> and they get transcri- transcriptions of every, um, every interview and a weekly video that I do do and a monthly um, a monthly webinar cool. with our guests. Um, so I'd like you to be on as a guest at some point in mm-hmm. in one of the coming up months. I know Nico Plowman will be in June because I, I was mm-hmm. he's our med- he's a meditator. Cool, he's fantastic. Um, and Bart Davidson is going to be this month. Mm-hmm. He came out he, his his thing came out uh, episode came out a couple of, couple of weeks ago now. Mm-hmm. He's a freak. You're a freak, Bart. (laughs) (laughs) But we love you and you're our next guest. Thank you very very much. So we'll finish up here, Jay. We'll turn off. We'll have a stretch. Mm -hmm. And then we'll do another five or ten. How's that sound? You up for that? I'm keen. Yeah, cool. Okay. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm scared now. (laughs) Thanks, mate. That was awesome. Very much appreciated. And next week on The Regenerative Journey, I am speaking with the legend, Uncle Bruce Pascoe. I caught up with Bruce uh, at the little church hall in Fairlight in, uh, in, in northern, uh, I guess, north Sydney, northern Sydney, uh, north side of the bridge anyway. Um, and uh, Ryan Watson helped organise that. It was wonderful. It was live. We did a wonderful recording and uh, it was a wonderful experience for, for everyone. Well, certainly me, and I hope you enjoy that episode next week with Bruce Pascoe, Uncle Bruce Pascoe, on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.